I said at first service, so I'll say it this time. Normally, someone else brings this up for the speaker. And then Brent did it last service, and he gave up. He is risen. Mistaken identity. I am horrible with names. I will talk to you for six, eight, nine months. And sometimes I'll remember your name. I will never forget. Matter of fact, Pam, I talked about you last service and called you Jill. (laughs) And I have been in their home and have eaten their food. Said it in public, not, not in the back. I said right here. We really love Jill Stukenberg around here. <laughs> and everybody looked at me like, really? But I don't forget a face. And it's so strange. And I find myself sometimes, and Regina will, Regina will tell you, I find myself with some interesting people just by random accident. So like one time I was flying from San Francisco, and I was on this this chair, I was in the, in the seat as they normally put in planes, they bolt them in, and I'm sitting inside the, there, and there was one seat next to me open, and everyone else was on the plane, and I was waiting, and, and they were waiting on somebody, and someone walks in, a guy, a quirky guy walks in, sat down right beside me, it was Jack Black. For four and a half hours, Jack Black was stuck next to me. And I literally just like looked at him for four and a half hours like, does he look like, does he look like Nacho Libre? Yes, he does. He acts like it. And I mean, he does. He acts just like his characters. For four and a half hours, I just sat there and tried not to bug him too much. Jack White is another musician I adore. I love his music. And I was at the Starbucks here in town. And I look over and no one in that restaurant, in that coffee shop, knew who he was, but Jack White was sitting right next to me sipping coffee, and I was like, Jack, Jack, and he looks over at me like, this is person's nuts, I was like, I love your music, no one knows who you are here, but can I get a picture with you, and so he, he literally, he's all six, four, or five of him, however, he's very, very tall, but everyone's very, very tall to me, and we walked outside and took picture with him. Um, one time we were walking our dog in Austin, and you probably don't know who Danny Trio is, but he lived in Austin, and he was literally standing right behind us, and these really big guys walk out and say, hey, you guys ready? And literally, we walked down a hallway with Danny Trio, true story, we have pictures to prove it, and the door opened, and Snoop Dogg is behind the door. My wife and I, herb free, hung out with Snoop Dogg <laughs> for about an hour. It was weird. <laughs> weird. But, my, but we were in a coffee shop in Austin, and I turned around, and this Kelly Clarkson with her band was sitting right behind there just with her band. And so I'm going to talk to them. You know, and so I, I literally was talking to Kelly Clarkson, but my wife didn't recognize who she was because she didn't have stage makeup on, and she looked rather rough, to be honest with you. Sorry. <laughs> She did. I'm so sorry. She looked like she had been on the road. But literally, I was just talking, but I was intrigued, right? It's a musician. I do music, and it's intrigued. This is someone who's very high level, is successful at what they're doing. And so literally, we talked for like 
I, I literally talked her leg off for like 45 minutes as I bought unintentionally $50 bag of coffee. I didn't realize it because I wasn't paying attention. My wife made me take it back <laughs> because she's a cheapskate. <clears throat> she actually will hold that with a proud. <laughs> but literally, she walks out the door and Regina leans over to me and goes, I'm a little upset because she was looking at me strange. And I was like, why? She goes, how would, why would you flirt with a girl in front of me for like 25 minutes? I was like, I wasn't flirting with her. Do you know who that is? She's like, no. I was like, that was Kelly Clarkson. And so my wife runs into the parking lot <laughs> looking for Kelly Clarkson. Mistaken identity. How do we know he is risen? We throw that word around, right? The phrase, he is risen. How, how do we know? Have we considered how complex even that statement is? Have you ever considered how complicated the story of the resurrection is? Consider Jesus, a revolutionary, a rabbi, gathered lots of followers, had a public ministry full of teaching, signs, and wonders, had lots of followers, sent those followers as missionaries. He then was falsely accused. He was publicly executed. Three days later, his tomb was found empty. And then over the next 40 plus days, he just appeared and disappeared. And then he would teach different sizes of groups of people. And then at the end of it, he disappears one last time. And as he's disappearing, he says, I'm leaving here to build you a house in a place that you're going to come someday. That's a strange story. And we say he is risen. Because wrapped in this one statement, he is risen, is really a lot of pretty deep philosophical and theological questions. How can Christ be fully God and fully man? It's a question that the church fathers wrestled with for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a question that theologians still kind of wrestle with on how, not just what it is, but how do you say it and, and, and what is it? It wrestles with theodicy questions and mystery. The list goes on and on and on. Still, the question begs, how does God reveal himself in the resurrection? What does it mean to say he is risen? How do I know it? He's risen. I wasn't there. You weren't there. And we think this is real. How do we know? I'm going to suggest today that we know He's risen in us moving from conversation with Him into communion with Him in our stories. There are moments in your story where God invites everyone under the sound of my voice and beyond to transcend from conversation into communion. And that in these moments, that's where God reminds you that He is risen. And in those moments, as He's reminding you He's risen, He's telling an unbelieving world, I am alive. I'm going to make the argument today, strong as I can, for the next five hours... That everyone in this room needs a fresh respect for your story. All of it. Not the bookends. Not the day, just the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Or the day where you had this amazing spiritual experience. 
all of your story. I'm going to make an argument today that God tells the world He's risen through that. Your personality hang-ups, those miscarriages, the ups and downs in church life, the times of poverty, the hunger, the mistakes, the hopes, the moral failure, the wins, the successes, the loneliness, the struggle, the things you're proud of, the things that you hide. All of these moments, I'm going to argue, are valuable to God because they're opportunities where God calls me and calls you from conversation into communion. And in that moment, He reminds us and the world, I am risen. From conversation into communion. You see, the gospel text that was read to you today, that we stand for out of honor and respect, it tells of an event in the book of Luke Acts. And it's right in the middle of Luke Acts. It's, it's really in the middle. It tells the story of Jesus and His work on earth. And then work through the church. It tells a lot of things. And, and really, to be honest with you, it's almost a nondescript story. It's about disgruntled and confused followers of Jesus. And they have every right to be disgruntled and they had every right to be confused because here were people who had given up their entire lives and were following this rabbi where there are many rabbis in his day, in the, in the day of Jesus, but they followed this particular rabbi and they gave up their lives, they followed his teaching and they could taste it on the the tip of their tongue that they knew that the Messiah was going to come to overturn the Romans there was something special about him and all of a sudden that was gone not just gone like he just disappeared in the night gone as in a public execution there was no mystery that this was going south it was very public and they were afraid for their lives for a moment there were times where they were disgruntled and then confused and they're walking down the road Hearing stories coming from everywhere that not only was he dead, not only did he have an execution, but somehow he must be alive too. We're not sure if he's alive. We don't know if he's missing. We don't know if someone stole him. They don't, they just don't know at this point. They just heard they had a supernatural experience hearing these angels and they're walking down and Jesus walks beside them. And apparently, and I don't know how it happened, but they don't recognize him, which is really, really odd. And, they, and Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And Cleopas, who says, who some historians say was believed to be the brother of Joseph, the husband of Mary, turns to him, meaning he was family. He knew Jesus as he grew up. Turns and looks at Jesus and says, where have you been? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And he died and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And it didn't happen. But on the third day, he's gone. And some women found the tomb was empty and then some angels appeared to them and told them the story about he's gone and then they came and, and, and others went and saw and, and it was just as, as the women had just said. They didn't see Jesus. See, nothing seemed very hopeful. These were people with hopes, expectations, assumptions, hurts. They could taste something 
that was supposed to happen, but didn't. And then Jesus preached a while, the story says. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. I want to remind you, this was not the first time they'd heard this. There are many accounts in the New Testament where Jesus, before he died, refers to something like this. And it didn't kind of pique their memory at all. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? He said that before. Nothing. And then he gives apparently maybe the longest sermon ever because we're told, when you start preaching sermons, we're told, do not go from Genesis to, to Matthew in your sermon. And he goes from Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I want to remind you again, i got to say it. This wasn't the first time they heard this stuff. These weren't unbelievers, fresh ears. These were church-going folk. But then there was a moment when they came near the house, a turning point happens in the story. The plot shifts. It's an odd part of the plot, actually. Where it says, Jesus would have kept walking, but he, they said, it's getting late. Would you want to come in? And when he did, they invited him in to this turning point. The Bible says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? These people were family. Fourth time I've said this. Because I want you to understand my point. This was not fresh material. Jesus was preaching a common sermon. These were people who had listened to Jesus speak for years. They had left commitments. They had been missionaries. They had seen angels. They had heard stories. They knew the promises. And yet these people did not know that he was risen until they made a simple decision to move from conversation into communion. I don't understand if Jesus purposefully hid his identity. I don't know if he did it. I don't know if he, he somehow did something that, that blocked, their, blocked them from knowing. I don't know if it was just they were dense. I don't know if it was dark. I don't, I don't, I don't know that. Smarter people than myself are going to have to write a paper on it and present it at the next symposium somewhere at yahoo.com.edu. I don't know that. I don't know why they recognize him after he tore the bread. I could easily, it's a slow pitch, 
over the plate, make a sermon, a whole sermon about why communion is important. I could go from every angle here. It'd be easy. I just know that his voice, his face, his walk, his preaching wasn't what made the resurrection alive to them and thus others. It was when they invited Jesus to share intimate space with them in community as they shared an intimate meal. That's when their eyes were opened. There was something in that communion moment that made an unbelievable resurrection story all of a sudden alive and fresh so much that all of their experiences burned within them. In communion, they were reminded of what they felt in conversation with Jesus. It was in communion that Jesus' sermons became powerful. It was in communion that they were brought back to the original reason. They even followed Jesus. It was in communion they saw that He is risen. And it happens over and over again in this part of the text. People walking in conversation, inviting Christ into communion. And then all of a sudden their eyes are open, their memories jarred, and their stories told for the whole world to see. He is risen. And it's in moments in our story when God moves with us from conversation to communion. That's where God seems to reveal himself to you and to others. Why? I don't know. I just know that how God has chosen to reveal himself to the world, that he is risen, is in our story. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that the resurrection of Jesus is like somehow equal part to, to our story. It's like, just me and Jesus get together and it's Jesus one half and me the other half and, and Jesus and I, we got a ministry together. It's JesusandNate.com and we come together and it's just me and us and he, come see Jesus and we'll rub him and touch him in 999. We'll say you something. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the resurrection is all about him. It is. It's all about him. A sovereign God enters into chaos of nature and he speaks. His voice writes an imbalance in nature. God speaks. He communes with nature. It's if, if creation is about resurrection and if resurrection results in salvation and salvation is about restoring something to its original creative intent, that is something that only God can do. I can't do that. And resurrection has been the central act of God since the beginning of time. It's offered by His grace. It's enacted by His grace. It's fulfilled by His grace. It's completed by His grace. All of nature moves from conversation into communion with Him. But I just can't believe that conversation doesn't imply community. Because conversation is more than one. It leads in an invitation, a journey, a process. He is risen. It's a collection, not one moment, not two moments, not three moments. It's a collection of many moments that all point to one reality. He is risen. Now, while I believe that the resurrection is all about Him, and therefore salvation is all about Him and His work, and it is the central work of Christ, I am not ready to buy that we have a passive contribution to the story 
of God. That we're left to just obsess about the day we were born and talk about the day we're going to leave. I just can't buy it. Because it's not real when you look around at our story. It's not true to the text. When you read from Genesis 1 to the end, it's not authentic to the text. The act of being drawn from conversation into communion doesn't have bookends. It can't because if God chooses to reveal himself in our story, that means that God values all of our story. Let me ask you this. Creation is important. Which day of creation was most important to God? Day one? How about day two? How about day three, four, and five? Oh, probably day six, because I'm involved there. How about day seven when he rested? Genesis 1 is a shocking poem. It's meant to be told as a poem. Is that more important than Genesis 2, which is told differently? It says that it was dirt and it needed water and man to work and the Spirit of God was rest upon it. Which, which of those accounts are more important from God to be told? Let's skip to the, the, the Gospels. Luke 11 is where Jesus taught us to, to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. Is that more important than Luke 9 and 10 where he sent out missionaries as an evangelical mission? How about the Acts 2 where his spirit dramatically falls on people and says, you're going to be witnesses unto me everywhere to the uttermost part of the earth. Is that somehow more or less important than Luke 9 and 10 and Luke 11 and the prayer that he taught us how to pray? How about Acts 10 and 19? How about Acts 15 where the Jews and Gentiles come together and say, we've seen God in places we don't understand and they're dealing with a lot of things. Is that somehow less or more important to the story that God is telling that he's risen than Acts 2? Which of these accounts are most superior and best tell that he's risen? Let's talk about the life of Peter, which is the most moment that stands out. When God called Peter? How about the time when he attacked a man in defense of Jesus? Attacked him. How about the time when he stood up and said, you're the Messiah? He acknowledged it, saw it before others around him saw it. How about when he also then subsequently, later, denied him and then ran away in, in, in challenge and cried and wept? Or how about when he preached the sermon about Jesus on the day of Pentecost? How about when... Just not much later, God challenged him in a dream about being racist. Literally, in a dream, said, Who are you to tell me that Gentiles can have the same experience as Jews? He challenged him. Which of these experiences are most? How about when Peter gave his life for Christ and happily gave his life for Christ? Which of those moments stand out the most powerful to say he is risen. All of them. All of them. You see, here's what's difficult about convergent, about being at sanctuary. And here's what's beautiful about being at sanctuary. My wife would have been here 
This has been a beautiful place for us. What's beautiful about here is what's difficult about being here, in my opinion. What happens here is there's a word for it. It's called convergence. It means that we believe, or you could believe, that we merge streams of evangelical impulses, charismatic impulses, and sacramental impulses. And we believe that that best tells the story of the church and God's work in the church. And we think, or I think, that the story of God didn't start a thousand years ago, or a hundred years ago, or seventeen hundred years ago. I think the story of God is all of it. And we submit to that. That's why we're here. Because this church is one of the churches, the only one I, we ever found, that literally says, we're going to submit to make it work. Here's the difficult part about that. Everybody who walks in the door, there's potential that we all come from backgrounds, that we have different theological outcome expectations. When am I saved? What is God's perfect will? Am I called of God? What kind of Christian am I? Am I evangelical? Am I post-evangelical? Am I charismatic? Am I post-charismatic? Am I reformed? Am I neo-reformed? I need a label to make sense of what I'm against and what I'm for. Right? Give me a label. What's the most important moment in your life when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior or when you had a charismatic experience or when we participate in the sacraments of the church or when we show fruit of the Spirit or gifts of the Spirit or what about when we submit to the liturgical calendar? Or what about when we, we push and live and believe social activism is how the churches also should participate in our community? Which of these moments are the most life-changing moments to tell the world He is risen? And I'm going to tell you all of them. Now, it behooves the church to have ramps of understanding. You better believe it. We need to have callings to mission and create space for biblical experiences and strong commitment to formation. This is the calling of leadership in the church. Don't misunderstand that. But I'm here to tell you that God could reveal himself to the world any way he wants. But he chose the worst marketing plan ever. You. <laughs> Me. And he chose by his sovereign will to reveal himself to you and to the world through your story, through believers, rebels, the rich, the poor, the smart, the uneducated, the boring, the artist, the story. You know why? I believe it's because God does his best work not in just the highs, not in just the lows, not in the proclamations, but in the common daily conversation in people's lives as we're being pulled into communion on Thursday morning, on Saturday evening. I'm telling you that most of the stories in the Bible are just normal, everyday people dealing with real issues in conversation with God. And God says, those are the days where I want to remind you, I am risen. I want to tell the world about me, and I'm going to do it as I bring your conversations into communion. With me. You want to know why this story is critical? <clears throat> this. I have a private 
explanation about this. I, I got busted already for calling it this, and I, Joe busted me a little bit. I call these chicken bucket offering plates. <clears throat> I, say it, I say it with all respect, actually. This is a joke. When we came here, my wife and I had been in church ministry, formal ministry, all of our adult life. My father-in-law got sick and asked my wife to come up, help. My wife's amazing at that sort of thing. And I said, we'll come. And I was kind of going through some theological things in my own life. And so I thought it was a good opportunity. And I, I was a minister who I went to OU to study music, but I did, had done music in a long time. And um, I played trumpet a long time ago. And so I was a preacher who used to do music. And so we moved to Tulsa. And so I did what every 38-year-old does. You start a band. It's a great plan. Try it. It brings in dozens of dollars. Dozens. Like I've got ones throwing everywhere. <clears throat> but we, we were looking for, finally we come to a crisis to where we had to find a church that really felt like, one, A, my wife was comfortable in. Two, that respected my Pentecostal heritage because I'm Pentecostal and I'm never, I'm not ashamed of it. But I'm also not like, I, I just love it, love that part of who, who, who I am. But we also come from our church plant where we, we believe in the practices like we love communion and we love the prayers and we love that. And we were like, maybe we could find that. And we love like preaching that there's more than one person that preaches. Literally, I'm not lying. We had a list. And it was this church. And, and frankly, in Austin, we had decided when we had this, this idea that when we planted a church that we, we thought, hey, is it possible to do church without a smoke machine? You know what? It's possible. It's, I've done it. People still come. I'm serious. I promise. Well, this church didn't have a smoke machine. That was like, I'm in. Where do I pay tithes? Well, literally, we were going here for a few months, and, and I was sitting, like, right over in this area with Regina, and I was like, well, if this is our home church, this was the very first church we'd ever attended. I had this identity crisis. I don't, it's hard to describe this identity crisis of, you know, it's the first time I walked in and not known anybody except Brent and Joe. <laughs> and I said, well... I'm going to do what I asked people to do for 15 years of my adult life. I'm going to go get involved. And I knew Joe because we went to kids camp together. <laughs> and I said, how do I get involved? And Joe hands me a chicken bucket <laughs> and gives me a rope. And literally, I was up standing right there. And I said, God, if this is our church. I just want to do what you want me to do. <clears throat> Surprised me. And uh, I'm sorry, I've said this twice, and so it's starting to kind of surprise me. And I'll say yes. No matter the cost, I'll say yes. I 
I have been reminded the last four months that one yes that God has been doing things in my life for 10 years I've been in conversation with God about stuff that I think I'm like God can we do this and it's happening here you see Brent, Bishop Ed Joe David before I ever played organ here or whatever, was the worst, world's worst communion volunteer. I, I am the world's worst communion volunteer. You're like, hey, you remember you're on communion today? Yes, I remember. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> it's saying, yes, I don't ignore May 5th, 1985 where I had this amazing experience with God as a kid. I remember the day. But I just have to say, that experience with this offering bucket has, has been as impacting to my life as May 5th, 1985. Maybe we need to reboot our thinking in Easter tide. There isn't a sermon I could muster up that, very, that the very religious Tulsa hasn't already heard. The most talented, gifted speakers of the last 70 years have graced this city at one time or another. But maybe we need to be reminded that God isn't done with us. That maybe the greatest revivals of the 21st century aren't in arenas. They're just in common day moments. And maybe the best sermons of the 21st century are preached in your life, not behind a pulpit. And as we're walking down the story, Jesus is conversing with us. And we're saying, God, I'm feeling out of place. I feel condemned a little. I've made mistakes. The 20th century kind of like burned me on religion. I can't make sense of church. Yada, yada, yada. Maybe God is saying, I want to use that. And I want you to bring that into communion with me. Maybe on Easter Tide, we just need to simplify everything that our story matters. Maybe on Easter Tide, I saw it with my own eyes. I didn't tell this story last, but we had a, a kid in our youth group in St. Louis, Missouri, did for eight years before everybody on the news got there, eight years, did a children's outreach to Ferguson, Missouri. I saw it with my own eyes. 700 kids, a 17-year-old, with my own eyes. Gina, can I get a witness? <laughs> before all the news media showed up, there was a Palestinian family in our church, and they just said, we have grocery stores, these little bitty grocery stores in neighborhoods. And they said, we're just going to serve the kids on Saturday and help them. Over 700 kids, 17-year-old, true story, saw it. Maybe we need at Easter a reboot on our view on mission and social justice and evangelism. Maybe the resurrection through social justice 
is less about proclamation and it being that proclamation is the cheapest form of activism. Maybe simply saying yes Monday through Friday in our community is the strongest statement. Maybe individuals like Pam Stukenborg and John 316 Mission. Maybe Lindsay Barber who says God's doing something in my life and everyone in this room should be against overt racism, but maybe for her she's saying, but I'm asking God to deal with me on the ways that I can help the subversive racism to help bring, bring healing to the body of Christ and to the world itself. Maybe that's true social justice. Because St. Clement of Rome wrote about Christians who didn't talk about ransoming themselves to the poor. He wrote about people who sold themselves into slavery so they could give that money to the poor. Maybe in Eastertide, we need to expand my view on spiritual experiences. You will never take from me, ever, take from me. My supernatural experience, the charismatic experiences in my life, it is real, I've loved it, I honor it. But maybe also going to the Maddoxes as they host a dinner for 20, 30-somethings and seeing people feel like they're a part, maybe that's as valuable and God shows he's risen there too. Maybe the Wades, when I got to go to the Wades for house church during Lent, and saw the move of the Spirit in that, in that church as I ate way too many carbohydrates and protein over and over. Maybe God's there. Maybe during Coffee With, when we get to talk about questions. As I hear Brett beautifully lay out philosophy in a very casual, very jealous, by the way, how you do that, casual way. Maybe in Easter Tide, I need to expand my thinking on the arts. <clears throat> Bono pined about Christian music industry and their lack of authenticity. I've got a beef to pick with that guy. If he really is probably has a problem with it, the guy is super, super rich. He could start a label, you know? There's a reason why people write those songs. They're paid by a label to write those songs. But maybe it's not about Bono on news programs on the weekend, who I honor him for all he does. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's, I'm not... Throwing stones at someone who gives tons of great things. Maybe it's about Lauren Rocket in this church, who is not an artist, but loves musicians and hosts something called the Living Room Show and brings artists from all over the country. Maybe it's Donovan Fight, who gives himself, he plays bass all the time here, but he also has got a band called The Lonelies. He writes songs. They're really good. And he plays bass every Sunday here with like childlike enthusiasm. It truly is like you could see his hair bounce behind the band. He's so excited to be here. It's true. You'll see it. Maybe God's voice to this generation rests by saying quit hiding behind the obstacles of busyness or the excuse I've been hurt because <clears throat> we're all busy. We've all been hurt. Maybe God's calling baby boomers, millennials, Gen Xers to, to just say, surprise me, God. And I'll say yes. Maybe evangelism looks like this. 
my sister's an art fanatic, and she took me to an exhibit called the the Lepeti, the Artists of Lepeti Boulevard. And George Saray was one of those people, and he he started a new technique called pointillism. Maybe evangelism in the 21st century looks like points of people just living life. And as we live our life, an invisible God becomes visible. You're red, you're green, you're yellow, you're brown, you're pink, you're purple. But as we just live, all of a sudden God walks in conversation with those lives and says, I want to come from conversation into communion. I think evangelism and living for him looks like it will look like in the future like it must have looked like in the beginning. Aristides wrote this quote, and I'm, I'm done. He said this. He wrote this to Caesar. But the Christians show kindness to those near them. And wherever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do good to their enemies. If one of them have bondsmen and bondswomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they've done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not among them, and they love one another. And he who is given to him who has not, without boasting, And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on the account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his need, necessity. And if there are any among them that is poor and needs, and they have no spare food, they fast two and three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Could it be that the way the world's reached is simpler than we think? Could it be where we find our place is simpler than we think? Where we find God is simpler than we think? Could it be found when we're in conversation into communion with our pain, our shortcomings, our dreams, our hopes, our story. One life, a visible picture, saying, He is risen.